You're listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. This episode features audio from a previously aired live video webcast. to Sagas and Sass Season 4, brought to you by Geek Saga Entertainment. I'm Tara, along with fellow host Jonathan and practically permanent guest host Seth. This episode will cover Thorns, part one of Morningstar, which is the third installment in Pierce Brown's Red Rising Saga. Please note that if you are watching this as a webcast, there is a chance you will hear some spoilers for other books in the Red Rising series during our live webcast. However, if you are listening to this as a podcast, any spoilery bits have been edited out. If you're watching live, join us in the chat, or after the fact, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Sagas and Sass, or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com to continue the conversation. Additionally, please note that the views expressed in this show are those of the hosts as individuals and do not necessarily represent the show as a whole. And don't forget that we now have a Patreon, which I actually will be making some slight edits to probably very soon, so keep a weather eye out. But currently, we have 10 tiers, ranging from $1 a month to $40 a month, and it offers tons of ways to support us and receive some great perks in return. You can find it at patreon.com slash geeksaga underscore entertainment. This is it, by the way. The final book in the OG Red Rising trilogy. And here we are with chapters one through four. Golden Sun ended with one hell of a betrayal and more than a few deaths. Not to mention wondering what the heck was going to happen to Darrow, incapacitated and captured by the Jackal, who it turns out was in league with the Sovereign. And listen, Morningstar might open with Darrow thinking he's not alone, like the Jackal says, and that he is not the Jackal's victim. He's the Reaper, after all. So the Jackal can do his worst. But Darrow knows suffering, knows the darkness, and knows that this is not how it ends for him. He was tortured, and then he was put in a dark box, and he doesn't know how much time has passed. The Jackal has offered him an out, that if Darrow admits he is broken, he will be released, but at the expense of his family's lives, as the Jackal claims to have them in prison as well. So Darrow considers this, but then decides to kill himself instead, and is about to do so when the ceiling of his box opens. The floor rises up, and he realizes that all of this time he has been locked inside at the Jackal's dining room table. And now the Jackal is showing him off to his dinner guests, because of course he is. Ugh, this dude. Those guests happen to include Cassius and Aja, who have apparently arrived to finally collect Darrow at his dissection, something that should have happened a long time ago, but apparently the Jackal wanted more playtime with Darrow, which the Sovereign allowed. Though now it seems the tensions between Camp Sovereign and Camp Jackal are even bigger than before due to the Jackal kind of sucking at running Mars. After listening to them bicker and to the Jackal somehow be even creepier and more awful than usual, Darrow is taken to be cleaned up and examined before his big trip, but his appointment is interrupted when two Grey sons of Ares show up to rescue him. The Greys, siblings named Holiday and Trig, have quite a bit of convincing to do, as poor Darrow can't help but think the whole situation is just another of the Jackal's fucked up games. In the end, Trig has to use the uh, phone-a-friend lifeline, and it's Severo in the Ares helmet because he's alive and kicking and did in fact organize this rescue. Darrow might finally believe in the rescue, but physically he's a wreck, and Holiday and Trig can't exactly carry him. So here's where a little cocktail named Snakebite comes in. It packs quite the punch, so even though it doesn't fix atrophied muscles or any of the other numerous things wrong with him, Darrow is at least able to walk on his own. 
But there's yet another surprise in store. Vixis, yeah, that Vixis asshole from the Institute and the Triumph joins them in the elevator and mentions another prisoner. And who is it? It's none other than Victra, which of course means Darrow and co have another stop to make before they can leave Casa Jackal. They'd make Vixis take them to Victra's cell and find her scarred and paralyzed, but still full of fight. Holiday has to stun her and she will have to be carried out. Oh, and even though they originally planned to leave Vixis alive, he mouths off about killing Fitchner and Severo being next. So Darrow slashes his throat and yeah, good riddance. Unfortunately, it's right then that the alarm sirens finally begin to wail. Oh, man. This book, like, as rough as the end of book two was, Morningstar has a one hell of a rough start. Yeah. I mean, the whole first chapter is almost entirely Darrow being in his own head, and it's a bad place for him to be right now. Yeah, there are a lot of things that make me slightly angry about the end of book two into the beginning of 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 book one specifically i think we're going to talk about this later how exactly the sons of Ares got betrayed in the first place and it's angry in the sense of not just oh this makes me angry because i hate all these bad people it's this makes me angry because it seems like you were stretching something to cover a plot point but anyway <laughs> but yes um Anytime your protagonist is in this kind of situation, it's not great. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're Corwin in the prison cells below Amber. Theon <laughs> in the Bolton dungeons. Theon in the Bolton dungeons. Uh, yeah, this is always this is always a bad time, right? This is your hero at their at their lowest ebb. And if you're gonna be really true to what's happening right now, there are gonna be a lot of bad thoughts going through this person's mind and it, that always makes for a rough read well i mean and there's some asides where darrow is thinking about the things he's been doing to keep himself from really just losing it all the thing that drives me crazy a little bit is he thinks about reciting all these works in five different languages and stuff like that and it's like i mean that's cool for you daryl but most people <laughs> don't have that knowledge period let alone recall of it all um so i'm glad that you had this to keep you from just going completely off the deep end in the box all this time but are, are you telling me tara that we if we were stuck in a box for a year would not be able to recite the entire song of ice and fire in our heads i mean have I... you have you memorized the entire <laughs> song of ice and fire <laughs> Look, I don't At know. At times, I feel like I've certainly done a lot, uh, memorized a lot of it, but then I realize when I reread it how much I forgot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I re I realize how much I forgot every time I go to the the trivia uh, contest at the at Ice and Fire Con. I'm like, they're like, there was one word on page thirty six of Feast for Crows, and I'm like, I, oh, it's not it. that bad. It's close. <laughs> but I was just going to say, look, if Darrow were a Heinlein character, he could just play chess in his mind. I think that. To me, the saddest part is when he reaches the point where he's thinking about the veil and he has stopped believing in it, that it, he's saying, you know, the veil is not real. It's a lie told by mothers and fathers to give their starving children a reason for the horror. There is no reason. EO is gone. 
She never watched me fight for her dream. She did not care what fate I made at the Institute or if I loved Mustang because the day she died, she became nothing. There is nothing but this world. It is our beginning and our end, our one chance of joy before the dark. For anybody who was raised in religion and has lost that faith, I, I feel you, man. Well, as someone who never had that faith and sort of thinks that's what actually is there, that part of it didn't actually impact me the same way. It's rough reading it from his perspective, knowing that he has lost something. Well, and also his thought that you didn't actually care, doesn't actually care, doesn't know, wouldn't know what's going on because he's done everything he's done because of her, for her. And now he's gotten to the point where... She doesn't know anyway. Well, I wanted to touch on the loss of the faith in the veil and the afterlife. That's the saddest part of it is that his loss of faith in those things makes him realize that EO, once she was gone, she was gone and he's done all these things for nothing, basically, in his mind. And that's, it's not, obviously that's not the case, but he is so deep in his depths. He is at his nadir that he can't see beyond if he was not in the veil watching over me watching down on me i don't know i don't know where yeah. the veil would be located <laughs> in the, in the uh, looking universe, up but i mean i know he was in a dark place but you know i viewed it as he's given up yeah but what i don't quite get of that feeling is when i think about someone who's passed away and you're trying to honor them by doing something that they would have appreciated they would have liked to me you're doing that for yourself and you're doing it in their honor for yeah. yourself and for whoever else it may help, not so much for them. I don't know that it's actually fair to ascribe that thought process to him at this point. I'm not yeah. sure he can think that way right now no, yeah. in the book. But it's it's also, you know, just like, I mean, he's had a bad year. The thing that kills me is like he's been hearing these sounds. I don't remember exactly how he describes them, but I when he realizes where he was being kept, he thinks like this like clinking that I heard and the murmurs, they were that was them eating dinner above me. Like their knives and forks against the plates and stuff. And it's like, wow. Now I know that Darrow is crammed in this box, but A, how big is this table? B because these are the first people as far as we know other than his little close circle like Lilith and Antonia who the jackal has revealed the fact that he's kept Darrow in his freaking table for all these months like wow dude you were literally only doing this for your own sick obviously we all know the jackal is a fucking mess but like knowing that you're eating inches above the person that you're torturing ugh all right, so do we imagine that the big reveal at the Jackal's party or whatever, to introduce it, he just looks at somebody, he's like, what did you invite us here for? And he goes, that's a rather tender subject. And then <sighs> Darrow comes out. Well, I assume it was more like, where is Darrow? We, we, we demand to see him at this point, was what was going on, because, again, the conflict between the Sovereign's people who wanted Darrow for uh, medical experiments and the jackal whose sole interest was just to torture him yeah ah the two genders dissection and torture i I mean are you better off you know with being a victim of mangala or a victim yes exactly (laughs) i i have a question i guess i'm getting slightly ahead but i mean still in the same chapter block do you really think that if darrow had accepted the jackal's offer that the jackal really would have let him go no (laughs) 
And in the end, the offer being, I will release you, I will give you a life of luxury, but I'm also going to kill your entire family, who I totally have, by the way. Yeah. Like, obviously, Darrow isn't in a mindset to think maybe the jackal is lying and doesn't have my family, obviously. But yeah, no, absolutely not. The whole thing is always just, it's one torture after another. And obviously, the offer itself, the jackal knew the offer itself would be torture to Darrow because Darrow has the capacity for relationships and love that he doesn't have and that's part of the reason he hates Darrow so much yeah it's just the thing that I was thinking about the offer for a second like assuming Darrow takes it which he wouldn't unless he were far more broken than he is right now even if Darrow took it I'm like so let me get this straight dude this dude started a rebellion because his wife died you think he's gonna let this whole family thing go I also think like you say that Darrow wouldn't take it unless he's a lot more broken than he already is. And I, I want to go back to that just because I don't believe he ever would have taken it because that's the thing mm. in the beginning of this book, he does actually consider it for yeah. a minute, you know, cause he's, he also believes that the Jackal is torturing his family. So he's thinking I'll get them released from their torture. I'll get me released from my torture. But then he has this moment where he's like, Oh wait, fuck no. Like I'm not giving up my family and instead starts bashing his head against the side of his torture chamber coffin thing hard enough to die. Yeah. Because he realizes that he has gotten to the point, like, I'm even considering this now. I would rather die than go farther. Yeah, I actually don't think he ever would have gotten to a point where he was broken enough to do that because he was literally willing to do this to stop himself from making that decision. Now, you know, Cassius has to identify him. And as much as I'm about Cassius and how hoity-toity and everything that he is, when he throws his cloak over Darrow... We know that Cassius and Golds especially, this wasn't about like, oh my God, he's naked. This wasn't a modesty thing. This was, Cassius didn't want to see it. Obviously that was part of it, but it's not like his sensibilities are super high or whatever. This is a dude who's murdered people, etc. He doesn't want to see it because he does actually have that pity for what they have done to Darrow and what Darrow has become. And I- just wanted to note that because i think that it's the one moment <laughs> in a long while where i've actually been like all right once in a while i guess cassius can do like a not horrible thing once in a while meanwhile lilith is over there slurping hummingbird eggs which soft boiled hummingbird eggs like hummingbird eggs are like a half an inch at most how hard is it to properly soft boil a hummingbird egg? And also just, ugh. I heard an interview with Piercer. He was like, I wanted to show how gross she was. Or These are my words. You know, I'm, I'm very much yeah, paraphrasing yeah. what he said, but he wanted to show how gross she was by having her eat something just so utterly ridiculous. It's something that only the richest of rich golds even would be eating because soft boiled hummingbird eggs he he could have had her eat an ortolan i, I was gonna say the same yeah. thing yeah right. been eating ortolan. yeah which folks if you're not familiar that's when you take a songbird that never did anybody any harm cram it full of cheese bake it and then eat it in one bite mm. bones and all bones and all Bo- the bones maybe not so much also so you put a towel I, over I your head to hide your to, like, shame from god in the dark right aren't you supposed yeah. to do it like in the dark yeah 
Well, I mean, is that to hide your shame or is that because you're heightening your senses? Because like, if I'm going to eat this awfully terrible thing, I should have the most joy and experience out of it possible. Supposedly, it was to hide your shame from God because somehow... Uh yeah, that I don't quite understand it. why eating an ortolan is any worse than eating any other animal, personally. But um, you know. I don't know. I like meat, so I'm I'm good I, with it. <laughs> I think it's because it's like, hey, here's this thing with no meat on it. I am gonna eat it just to show that I can eat it, and it's like that's a. But isn't it supposed to be a delicacy? Yeah, I mean, it's mm. supposed to be a delicacy. I mean, I haven't tried but, it, so I'm I not mean, gonna say caviar is also supposed to be a delicacy, but I've tried it and it just tastes like salt. What, what? yeah, uh, caviar, caviar, salt, and fish. I've had some really expensive caviar, and to me, it always just takes tastes like fishy, salty. Yes, and oh, and I, the texture. Ugh. I, I agree with you, Tara, and I also have people I know who absolutely love it. Honestly, I think people who say they love caviar are lying. <laughs> they just don't want to seem like they're not cultured enough to love caviar okay <laughs> anyway it's time for darrow to be sent to luna so they send him to the doctor they clean him up a bit and then they send him to a yellow to be examined to make sure he's healthy enough for the trip and shockingly he somehow is although the doctor keeps referring to darrow as it and darrow actually kind of Gets a little bit angry about that. He's like, Itch. and the doctor's like, kind of just turns away from him, continues his conversation, and emphasizes calling Darrow an it again. And then, like, right after this happens, this is one of my favorite moments in the series because I both love the Nakamura's, both of them, even though we obviously don't know Trick for very long, as we'll learn very, very yeah. soon. But I love the Nakamura's, and the doctor's talking shit, and they just bust in and gun down the greys and the doctor too and it's like aha fuck you yeah racist piece of shit the racism in these books in my opinion is very colored ha, 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 by our actual society but the nakamura twins bust in and as we mentioned in the summary they have to convince darrow of who they are part of them convincing darrow is trig insists on stopping and taking the moments, even though Holiday says they don't have the time to give Darrow his razor. As soon as Darrow sees it, he knows it's his razor, the one Mustang gave him that he lost twice already, once to Carnus and then again to the Jackal at the Triumph. And he's kind of frightened to hold it again, but then he does. And it was just kind of a plain, simple razor the last time he saw it. But now I love this passage so much. I'm going to try not to be too emotional about it. It ripples now with images etched into the white metal. Eo looks back at me, an image of her etched into the metal. The artist caught her not on the scaffold, not in the moment that forever defines her to others, but intimately as the girl I loved. She's crouched, hair messy about her shoulders, picking a hemanthus from the ground, looking up, just about to smile. And above Eo is my father kissing my mother at the door of our home. And toward the tip of the blade, Leanna, Lauren, and I chasing Kieran down a tunnel, wearing Oktobernacht masks. It is my childhood. Whoever made this art knows me. The golds carved their deeds into their swords, Holiday tells him. The grand, violent shit they've done. 
but Aries thought you'd prefer to see the people you love. Now, granted, he still is going to go kill a bunch of people with this razor. It's still a weapon. But I do love that dichotomy of the golds carving their brash deeds into their razors. But Severo knew that Darrow would prefer to see the people he fights for. Severo is is weirdly sweet. He's very sentimental. Yeah. Even when he's being kind of crass and shit, he's yeah. always been very sentimental. And we see a lot more of that side of him in this book. Yeah. For Less sure. unicorn porn. Yeah. More Less unicorn porn, style. more sentimental. Yeah. <laughs> they get on an elevator and like just ugh, fucking Vixus. Though... Hey, you know, at least him being the asshole that he is allowed for Darrow to find out that Victor was alive and also a prisoner and then rescue her. It's so fucking creepy when Vixus asks Holiday and Trig who they have and they tell him it's an obsidian because, like, obviously Darrow's too tall to be anything else, but they can't exactly say it's Darrow. And and when Vixus asks if it's a howler, they're like, ooh, can't tell him that either because he's going to want to do something with him himself. But... He is like, oh, well, we'll just put him in the cell with the Julii, bitch, and they can fight over dinner. And Darrow is immediately like, he says something to Trig, kill the cam or something like that. Basically saying, like, make sure nobody's watching. And it's just like, if you've never read this series before, you obviously think that Victra is dead at this point, right? She gets shot in the back, the upper part of her spine, two times, and was, like, crawling toward Darrow saying, like, I wasn't part of this the last time he saw her, and we never heard anything else about her. It was only a flesh wound. Okay. Oh, it was more than that, because she's straight <laughs> up paralyzed, but... It's also sort of, uh, I don't know, this is not really a spoiler, it's it's sort of a pity that I guess we don't get Lauren back. Like, yeah. if Victor could survive getting shot. But it's also, like, my favorite thing about that is, like, the only way you could beat him is by treachery. Well done. You've proved that you were more treacherous than the finest uh, razor master who ever lived anyway and at some point i believe actually it might have been during their conversation over darrow when he's has risen up out of the table i want to say lilith makes some snarky comment about lorne and aja even and listen aja is not a nice person but she even is like the fuck like side-eyeing Lilith because she knows as much as Aja is not a good person she has her own twisted sense of honor and she's just looking at Lilith like bitch don't you even didn't 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 she say keep his name out of your mouth and slap no that's something else Mm -hmm. I wish honestly (laughs) I wish she'd slap those hummingbird eggs right out of Lilith's mouth (laughs) Yeah. So Victor's torture, very interesting that it is the opposite of Darrow's, especially at first glance. It's almost like what I kind of imagine is that maybe it's Pierce showing us the difference between, I want to think that Victor's torture being kind of the opposite of Darrow's, the bright light, the loud noise, the whip and burn scars on her back, or sort of like Pierce trying to show us the difference between the way the Jackal tortures and the way Antonia tortures. Like Antonia's is all loud, overwhelm the senses, and the Jackal's is make him feel alone in the dark, apart from everybody, because that's how the Jackal feels all the time. Take you a step back though, the Jackal didn't always torture that way. Did isn't he the one who tortured Antonia in the Institute? Oh, he's tortured tons of people. But there's a difference between... I don't think you can compare what is done to 
a stranger who you have no attachment to at the Institute to what the Jackal wanted to do to Darrow because Darrow was basically usurping him as his father's son, you know? Yeah. Well, but Darrow is a red. I never quite understood the Antonia partnership. Yeah, I don't think most people do. But despite the fact that she's then tortured and she's paralyzed, she still has a fuck ton of fight in her because, you know, ha, she be Victra. And she really does fight back hard when she thinks that Darrow is like a trick. She's screaming like, take off your face, take off your face, because she thinks that it's a flesh mask or whatever, which is sad, but also the fact that she still it has that fight in her. I don't know if it's the difference between Victra and Darrow or if it's the difference in the torture, but obviously Darrow wasn't attacking Holiday and Trig. Granted, he didn't know them, but he wasn't like, this is a fake rescue, like clawing their faces off or whatever. He was just scared. Whereas Victra is obviously going to be scared, but it's the fight or flight or hide reaction. Like, I think Darrow wanted to fold into himself, whereas Victra is like, fuck you, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Which, oh, Victra. They have to like stun her to get her out of there. A lot, <laughs> by the way. It takes a lot to stun her. And they told Vixus they were going to leave him alive, but they lied. Did they, though? Because, like, they were going to leave him alive. I guess there were caveats to that. Like, we'll leave you alive unless you mouth off about, you know, killing Fitchner and Severo being next. And then Darrow is just 10,000% done with you. But that wasn't part of the deal. They didn't mention that in advance. Well, I know. <laughs> I, 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 like, golds like to get away with seeing how far they can push people and sometimes it backfires. Well, I mean, in this case especially, hmm. Darrow specifically says he wants pity my pity was lost in the darkness. The heroes of Red Songs have mercy, honor. They let men live as I let the jackal live so they can remain untarnished by sin. Let the villain be the evil one. Let him wear black and try to stab me as I turn my back so I can wheel about and kill him, giving satisfaction without guilt. But this is no song. This is war. I would like to add as a footnote to that that Yes, my, this has taken some social engineering because, as we all remember, the Reds are Irish, and being an expert on Irish folk music, there's not a whole lot about mercy. And also, to combine this is, <laughs> this is no song, this is war, with life is not a song, sweetling. <laughs> yeah. Well... Victra may be in hand, but stopping to save her, which of course they had to do, I don't care what Holiday and Trig say, particularly Holiday, delays them enough to end up in quite the pickle. And on that note, we move on to chapters five through eight. Unfortunately, Darrow and company have more to worry about than just alarms. Their elevator is being redirected, and they can't override the controls. This means it's time for Plan C, also known as Escalation which basically means Holiday and Trig have to prepare for just about anything while they wait for And it turns out they really did plan for just about everything they could, including bringing a private EMP to incapacitate the enemies, weapons, and ancient weapons of their own that aren't affected by the EMP, because of course there's always an EMP. Laugh out loud, please. Thank you. <laughs> they make it to a landing pad, and Holiday announces that they only have to wait it out for three more minutes. But then Darrow notes that the snow has stopped falling and looks up to see that a defensive shield has been activated around the Jackal's Fortress. 
Holiday still insists the rescuers will come, even after Aja shows up and takes down Trig. There is no time for mourning, but Darrow can't understand how their rescuers will get the shields. Holiday gestures towards the edge of the landing pad and tells him to listen. But before we know what he's listening for, Cassius arrives to taunt them. And all Darrow knows is that he will not let them take him and Victor again. Thankfully, Cassius being the big blowhard that he is, even after Darrow drags the badly injured Holiday and paralyzed Victra from their hiding place to stand at the edge of the pad, a whole ass conversation happens. At the end of which, Darrow tells Cassius to listen to the wind, even though he knows his enemies won't understand what they're hearing, because a son and daughter of gold would never recognize the sound of a claw drill gnawing through rock. Or guess that Darrow's people wouldn't come from the sky, but from the heart of their planet. So with Holiday and Victor in hand, Darrow flings himself into the open air and falls and loses his grip on Victra. And the ground is rushing up and then boom, 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 literally a whole chorus of sonic booms. The air is filled with howling armored figures and Ragnar catches Darrow and Holiday. Sabro has hold of Victra and in the midst of battle, Darrow briefly loses consciousness. He wakes on a ship surrounded by dying men, but almost immediately blacks out again. The next time he wakes, it's to the sound of his uncle Nerol's voice. Nerol, who is definitely not dead, just like Darrow's mother Deanna assumed. Oh, and Deanna is there as well, and soon Dancer arrives, and even though Darrow is worried about having been tracked about Severo and Ragnar and Victra, his family, both blood and found, reassures him at every turn. But he has one more question that needs answering. How the heck the Jackal knew who and what he was? Darrow is worried that it was him that he screwed up and left ja- uh, left clues for the Jackal to pick apart, but it turns out that Harmony gave him up first. That said, Darrow showing up and being present during Mickey and Evie's rescue cemented everything. So, you know, <sighs> good job there, Darrow. And then the Golds held a VPE, that's very public execution, that was also a trap for the Sons who tried to rescue Darrow before he could be killed. Lost thousands of people, and in the end, thought they lost Darrow as well because the person they did kill looked just like him. Not to mention the fact that they executed the fake Darrow as a gold, not as a red. Just another gold who thought he could be king. So, you know, one heck of a warning. And everyone but Severo thought Darrow was dead until some of Theodora's informants caught wind of the fact that some Olympic knights were headed out to escort a package from Attica to Luna. Quick aside, yes, that Theodora. She's with the Rising now. Everybody snaps for Theodora. Yes, good. Good. All right. So the rescue was planned and executed, though not without quite a few hitches, and here Darrow is. But when Dancer immediately starts talking about next steps, Darrow stops him because he just wants some time with his family. And so he gets just that, including meeting his nieces and nephews, seeing Eo's sister Dio, and sitting with Kieran and Nerol for a while, even reassuring them that he has a plan. And even though they all know that's a lie, it's one they all have to tell themselves, at least for now. Just real quick, R.I.P. Trig. We barely knew thee. Yes. Pour <laughs> Trig one out. was great. Like, Pour honestly, one out for my gray homies. Seriously, like, Trig was great. I love both of them, right? But trig definitely had he had an ability for human connection i think that i'm not sure holiday has at quite that level or even close to it not saying anything bad about her but he knew when darrow needed the razor he knew what darrow needed to hear whereas holiday was like nope this is a job get the job done darrow's our mission blah 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 to the point where obviously she's upset about losing her brother but darrow wants to rescue him and she's like nope 
you are the mission. You have to stay alive. Trig told you you have to stay alive. I'm telling you you have to stay alive. Stay alive. Trig is going to die. Like, I'm upset about it, but 13th Legion, man. Yeah, I mean, Pierce Brown has this really interesting way of writing characters who die that you wish you got to spend more time with, and sometimes <laughs> that can be really annoying. And sometimes, like here, it's just like, oh, but, oh, that, I like that. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Well, this is also, a, this isn't like Leah or Quinn even who you wanted to know more about them, but you got with Quinn a book and a little more with Leah two thirds of the first book. Like yeah. this, you get a few chapters, but oh. I think that the fact that you only get a few chapters, but it's still sad when he dies is a big. Uh... Yeah. I mean, I, w I was actually thinking about EO. Like I oh. still am like, yeah, well, you know, I could have spent more time with EO. He, he's also a very, um. He's very murderous as an author. He's very, very <laughs> prone to kill people. But yeah, uh, now I, I think I can now talk about the part where Harmony sold them out. Yes. Yeah. You don't buy that? I don't. I don't. And I don't buy it for two reasons. One, uh, Harmony hates cults. Hates them. So much hates them. Does she hate Dancer and Darrow more? Really? Well, it wasn't I just mean, hating Darrow like, and Dancer more. Wasn't it also saving her own skin? Yes. I honestly <laughs> think that she believes that saving her own skin is the best for making open war, like going after gold. It's like part of her doesn't care about living necessarily. Her whole life has been about revenge and that need for revenge, which we'll talk a little bit about in this episode but that need for revenge can so totally blind you against so many things right and that's just in real life but we're talking about a world where she believes that darrow's a sellout that dancer's not doing enough and let's be real she's also being tortured be before yeah, she gets I up too so there's a torture aspect to it before she gives it up but i do believe that a part of that is they're torturing me. They're going to kill me. But I need to live because who else is going to do the job? I mean, okay, there's that. I really do think that Harmony's drive for revenge against gold has just completely blinded her to anything other than getting it done. And she has she stopped believing that the sons, as they were, run by Fitchner, Dancer, and Darrow, period, would get that done. So... She saves her own skin so that she can be the one to get it done. For bonus points, if anybody wants to write an essay comparing what just happened here to the break between the real IRA and the provisional IRA, uh, you could send that in to me. It just seems like there are definitely times in the books where a lot of stuff goes exactly right without a hitch for the bad guys. Whereas it almost never goes exactly right without a hitch for the good guys. Maybe. Almost never. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there's there's some stuff that I'm like, wow, that went really smoothly and according to plan, didn't it? Huh? Weird how that well, happened. For I you. mean, I have you read A Song of Ice and Fire? <laughs> well, no, that's well, because... It, it, well, it didn't go so well for the bad guys in that either. Look, A Song of Ice and Fire isn't going... Isn't really going well for anybody... Uh, because because <laughs> good old chaos is a ladder even if he doesn't meet the end that he met in the show and i kind of hope that he does 
is going to be real, real surprised <laughs> when the white jam a spear up his ass after he sat it on the Iron Throne. You know what I mean? Even if the bad guys in Westeros succeed, they're hosed. Let's get back to this. I actually don't think everything was going wrong in general over the course of these three books for the good guys. I actually thought they had a lot of successes. Oh, I don't I, I don't think that every that everything went wrong for them, but they had stuff planned out really well. And even so, when it came time to put those plans into action, something happened that was bad and then they had to improvise or work their way through it. Whereas for the bad guys, it seems like they put a plan into action and bam, that thing that we're good to go on. Well, I don't think we actually have the bad guys plans. We don't have a point of view character of the bad guys in this series. We're assuming it went according to their plan. But for all we know, there is scrambling as much as anyone else. It would help me to see that is all I'm saying. Even here, though, we've got Cassius over here just believing that they've won. He thinks they've thwarted Darrow's escape. He tells him to accept his fate, calls him a terrorist. And, you know, you've given up any rights you might have had. Darrow's just like, Bill Fogman? What rights? I watched my father die. I had to pull my wife's feet. He says what gives you the right to take them, but he means gold in general. And Cassius just keeps throwing that terrorist word around, which, uh, you know, certain people who have no right to throw that word around love throwing around. Not saying terrorists don't exist, but... Just saying, in this case. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Cassius is all, honor still matters. Honor is what echoes. Because he's trying so hard to be his father's son, but this war has taken everything from him. As we learned at the end of book two, he actually believes that Darrow either killed or had his whole family killed. Same either way. He believes Darrow's at fault for that. And in this moment, even though Darrow recognizes that Cassius has had all these things taken from him, that Cassius believes that Darrow was a part of taking everything from him, Darrow thinks that if Cassius could, he would choose to be back by the campfire they made in the highlands of the Institute. He would return to the days of glory when life was simple, when friends seemed true. But wishing for the past doesn't clean the blood from either of our hands. And I'm like, really, Darrow? In this moment, I don't know that Cassius is specifically wishing to be like chilling by a fire with you at the Institute. Kind of too much has happened. I mean, no, but I get the idea that he's like wishing for the days when it was all us fighting to survive against everyone else. And I was looking for who killed my brother and they were bad and that was it. And now honor has survived with all of these because clearly the jackal is an honorable man. Ugh, oh, Cassius. Ugh, anyway. Holy shit, though. That last second rescue. Darrow just flings himself off this landing pad. Now, he has heard the sounds. He knows what's happening, but he doesn't have the timing correct. Holiday's severely injured. Victra, PTFO, and also paralyzed. So Darrow's kind of the only one that's like, well, I gotta make a choice here gonna just jump off this landing pad and hope i guess seth do you want to read this passage amidst the rising sons of Ares, a crimson armored man with the spiked helmet of his father zips forward and catches victra seconds before she impacts on the roof of a skyscraper the howling of wolves babbles from his helmet speakers 
It's Ares himself. My best friend in all the worlds has not forgotten me. He has come with his legion of empire breakers and terrorists and renegades, the Howlers. A dozen metal men and women with black wolf cloaks kicking in the wind fly behind him, the largest of them in pure white armor with blue handprints covering the chest and arms. His black cloak is stained with a red stripe down the middle. For a moment, I think it's Pax come back from the dead for me. But when the man catches me in holiday, I see the glyphs drawn in the blue paint of the handprints, glyphs from the South Pole of Mars. It is Ragnar Valeris, Prince of the Valkyrie Spires. He tosses Holiday to another howler and pushes me behind him so I can wrap my arms around his neck, dodging my fingers into the rivets of his armor. Then he banks through the smoking valley toward the tunnel, shouting to me, Hold fast, little brother. I love that rescue, man. Darrow's like, oh, the timing, the timing, the timing, the timing. The ground is rushing up fast, and then he hears like the boom, 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 where it's just the sonic booms of them. I don't know why there were sonic booms, honestly. Was it their ghost cloaks disappearing? It seems a little bit unnecessary. Well, they is were there... coming in faster than the speed of sound. I guess from the ground somehow. Whatever. Okay. I'll well, they were you... coming through a gigantic tunnel at at 3,000 miles an hour with, yeah. It's, I don't know how it's fast unlikely. they're grab, yeah, but whatever. It was a beautiful picture in my head. <laughs> so I'll give you that, Pierce. Ragnar grabbing Darrow from the air and Severo grabbing Victra and obviously they're not safe right away. There's still like a firefight happening and people are being shot and the reason Darrow loses consciousness the first time is because of sun gets torn apart in front of him and the helmet like flies at his face and knocks him out is the way I read it anyway. And then he wakes up very briefly and he realizes he's on a ship and he sees a red next to him who is dying. You know, he's severely injured. He's dying. And the red kind of like reaches for him and says his name. And then Darrow just loses consciousness again. And the next thing he knows, he's kind of having a dream he is hearing Uncle Nero's voice reading a poem and thinks that he is in the veil because he is hearing Nero's voice. And even though his mom was like, I don't think he's really dead. I don't think Darrow's in the mind space to really recall that. All he recalls is that Nero is kind of supposed to be dead. And the poem that Nero is reading, I think Nero calls it some poncy shit. <laughs> I think Deanna says like, well, Dancer said it was his favorite. Because that's the thing, like, Darrow has read and seen and heard so many things now that he's not relegated to just the red songs and poems and whatever they were allowed. He knows so much more. Apparently it's a bit from Antigone. But either way, Ponzi shit. <laughs> per I Uncle Narrow. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think Uncle Narrow never got to the end of Oedipus the King. I'm guessing not. I'm kind yeah. of surprised, like, the reds are allowed to read honestly I, but he wakes up and Nero is there he's alive his mother is there as well despite you know the jackal claiming that he captured and tortured her of course we learn very briefly earlier that you know Darrow's like they have my family in the call that they made to sever and so I was like no 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 don't worry about that your family's fine I saved them already he sees his mom and she's older even than the last time he saw her and yet he thinks her broken body is not what she is on the inside. There she stands, tall as any gold, broad as any obsidian. And yet Darrow, broken AF as he is, all he wants to do is protect her and heal her and give her all the things she never had. He loves her so much. 
she's his mama. And he doesn't know what to say. And he finally speaks. And they all realize he's awake. Nerol stops and his mother approaches him. One of the things that really stuck out to me about the whole conversation here is Deanna, his mom, kind of breaks down because she feels so bad that she gave up on him. She thought he was dead. And he's like, it's not your fault. You couldn't have known. But she admits that Severo knew he wasn't gone. And Dancer explains, he never stopped looking for you. I thought he was mad. He said you weren't dead, that he could feel it, that he would know. I even asked him to give up the helm to someone else. He was too reckless searching for you. Listen, I know just talking a little bit of shit here. And some of it is deserved, which we will not get into quite so much in this episode, but we will in future episodes. But I don't know, man. They're not blood brothers. They're not twins. But that idea of having a friend that loves you so much that they insist they would know that you are gone is just like, "Mm." yeah, gotta give some several love, man. It's also like Darrow's at this point in Severo's life, Darrow was Severo's first friend. And for Mm -hmm. a while... Darrow was Severo's only friend. He had the Howlers, but I don't know that back in the day you could have called them friends. They have sort of become so as things for a period of time got less intense. But back at the Institute, allies, followers, but friends might be a little bit. Yeah, and there's also, depending on where we are in the story, different versions of the Howlers, right? I mean, they're there's the original howlers and they've been picking up howlers along the way ever since that we picking up losing picking up some more (laughs) yeah exactly none of which we have ever really met other than the original ones but there clearly are more of them so that's more like unit camaraderie than true i for sure think that Severo has a friendship good relationships etc with the other howlers particularly the ones who are still around which we'll talk about in a bit like clown and pebble but like Seth said, Darrow was Severo's first true friend. So moving on a little bit, yeah. Darrow finally gets to see his nieces and nephews, including his brother Kieran's first child with Dio, which, by the way, when Dio walks in the room, Darrow does like a double take because he's like, whoa, Dio. And he's like, oh, no, wait, you're just Dio. Dio is like, hold this baby. And Darrow's like, oh, no, this is so weird, which I completely identify with. <laughs> I know Darrow is just like, he's in pain and he's like all overwhelmed and everything. But also I identify with the awkward, like, do I really want to hold this baby? Not really. Okay, you're giving me the baby. Oh, it's cute. The baby is delighted with him, unaware of, in his mind, in his own opinion, what a monster he is. Jonathan, you want to read this quote? Her world is alien to the horrors I know. All the child sees is love. Her skin is pale and soft against mine. She's made of clouds and eye of stone. Her eyes large and bright like her mother's. Her demeanor and thin lips like Kieran's. Were this another life, she might have been my child with Eo. My wife would have laughed to think it would be my brother and her sister together in the end and not us. We were a little storm that couldn't last, but maybe Dio and Kieran will. It's just very sweet. Daryl getting to meet his little niece is so sweet. And obviously after this, Darrow has the conversation with his family, particularly with Kieran. They're kind of talking about like, we have it good up here, but it's not good for everybody. And they're looking to him for leadership. And he is just like 
Jesus, I can't give them what they want, but he lies and says that he can, and they know he's lying and he knows he's lying, but they're all just going to accept it because they want to have their happy evening together, right? However, now that Darrow knows some of what's going on, it's time for him to face the more difficult things in chapters 9 through 12. The morning after Darrow's family time, Severo and Ragnar come a-calling. Loudly and roughly, with Severo wrapping Darrow in a bone-crushing hug after greeting one of Darrow's nieces, because it's clear that the whole fam is, well, besties with Darrow's besties. Seriously, the kids are asking for presents and using Ragnar as a jungle gym, and it's kind of the cutest. Although, when Darrow notices Severo's eyes, things take a bit of a weird turn. Because Severo has red eyes now, y'all. And yes, that's red with a capital R. And they aren't just any red eyes. They're Darrow's. And uh, yeah, Ragnar is right when he says it's odd that Severo had Darrow's former eyes implanted in him. But this is Severo we're talking about, so maybe not all that odd. Anyway, now it's time for them to take Darrow for a walk, during which he learns that, thanks to Mickey, Ragnar has fancy new teeth and knows how to read, and that thanks to Fitchner, they have this place called Tinos. And from the inverted stalactite that they are currently occupying, Darrow looks down and sees a sprawling refugee camp packed full of clans from the mines that the Jackal has been purging. Problem is, as much as the Sons want to fight against the Jackal's attempts at genocide, they don't have enough space, food, or meds for everyone. The refugees even rioted at one point, though Ragnar descended to put a stop to that, apparently in a firm but nice enough way to earn himself the nickname the Shield of Tinnas. And as if the conversation wasn't dark enough already, it comes to a close with Severo revealing that Cassius was the person who killed Fitchner, because of course he was! Yuck! Okay, so now that Darrow is briefed on all of that, it's time for him to get caught up on all the war news, including that Mustang is alive and has made common cause with the Moon Lords in their new rebellion against Luna. Uh, private side note, it is, of course, funny that the Moon Lords are rebelling against the Moon. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> different um, moons. Different moons. It's uh, granted. Their rebellion is due to a combination of their own general hatred of the sovereign, disdain for the core and its people, and the fact that the arch governor of Io and his nine-year-old granddaughter were killed at the triumph slaughter. But to Darrow, that's neither here nor there, because again, Mustang is alive, and it also means that the Rising isn't the sovereign's only enemy. Unfortunately, Roke al butt-sucking Fabii, Severo's words, but we are here for them, stole a moonbreaker, and has been keeping the moon lords tied up with, you know, space battles and stuff. The too long didn't read is that the Rising is running out of time. The Reds from the mines aren't warriors, the Jackal's media is blaming every civilian death on the Suns, and Harmony is leading her own Red Legion around, massacring every high color they can. It's open rebellion, nay? Open war. But Darrow, for one, is confused as to how it happened. And well, it's more like Severo happened, happened to release the recording of Darrow's carving to, you know, like the entire universe. Darrow feels used, but apparently all Severo cares about is that now Darrow, who, you know, very obviously isn't dead, isn't a martyr, but a messiah. This leaves Darrow in a pretty dark place because he's still of a mind that the Rising can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with gold. Even after he hears that Ragnar has sent envoys to the ice to tell the Obsidians 
bondage and that they will soon be freed, he's too wrapped up in his own thoughts, worrying about all that should have and what if, what ifs. So Ragnar calls him out and then takes him on a little field trip to the hospital. Once there, Darrow ends up spending quite a bit of time talking, joking, and laughing with the injured Reds, and then he's finally ready to go back and face his allies some demands of his own, including that they send an emissary to Mustang and bring Mickey back to Tinos to make Darrow into a weapon again. Oh, and there's one last thing. He wants to visit Victra, but obviously he's not asking for permission to just say hello. He finds her bound to a hospital bed. When he offers her an explanation, she scoffs because she doesn't care. Never would have cared about what he was. And in return, he admits he should have trusted her and says he will give her whatever she wants, including allowing her to leave Tinos. But what he really wants is for her to join the Rising, to join the Sons of Ares. She wants revenge because, you know, Victra going to be Victra. And even though he reminds her that revenge is best served cold, he still promises to get her carved back into shape as well. Well, he actually doesn't say it's a dish best served cold. He says it will end hollowly. And then they shake it on it and yell, yeah, Victra's truly officially part of Darrow's team now. Just want to go back real quick to Ragnar and the kids is like the fucking most adorable. <laughs> the children cluster joyously around Ragnar so he can barely walk. And then later, like Darrow, a page later, Darrow notes that one of them is like climbing up his leg and they're asking him he's brought presents and he's got ribbons braided in his hair, which are clearly from them. And it's just like, I love it. I am it's so weird. here for everything Ragnar. It's very pure. It's it's very it's very pure, pure, and this is something that comes up several times in this book. But the shield of Tinas, 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 whatever the shield of Tinas thing is very much like Ragnar. He always wanted to be a protector, and he was made to be a murderer. And oh, it's just I don't want to get too much into that, but uh, I love it. I love him with the kids. I mean, in several also, you know, he runs in, he scoops up one of the kids, he's like tussling with her, throws her, throws her to the side when he sees Darrow and like goes to hug him but uh he's already saying he brought them candy or whatever it's very cute the whole thing is very cute I love that Darrow's fam is besties with his besties like end of story so this next passage you know Seth you read several I'll read the Darrow parts he leans in close do you like him Buried in that squinting, sharp-angled face, his eyes are no longer that dirty shade of gold, but are now as red as Martian soil. He pulls back his lids so I can better see. They're not contacts, and the right is no longer bionic. Bloody damn, did you get carved? By the best in the business. Do you like them? They're bloody damn marvelous. Fit you like a glove. He punches his hands together. (laughs) Glad you said that, because they're yours. I blanch. What? They're yours. My what? Your eyes. My eyes. Did yon friendly giant drop you on your head in the rescue? Mickey had your eyes in a cryo box at his joint in Yorkton, a creepy place, by the by, when we raided it for supplies to bring back to Tinos to help the rising. I figured you weren't using him, so... So I asked if he'd put him in. You know, bring us closer together. Something to remember you by. That's not so weird, right? I told him it was odd. Ragnar says. I love that passage. Everything about it. It is fucking weird. <laughs> Severo, well, as we all know from earlier, Severo is obsessed with eyes. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. I don't remember which episode that was. Part two or three of Golden Sun, I believe, when Mustang brings back Pliny's eye that she plucked from his face, and Severo's like, can I have it, please? <laughs> yeah. 
I don't think he was always obsessed with eyes. I think it was only when the jackal took his eye at the Institute that he became obsessed yeah. with them, which I, I honestly, good reasoning, I guess. It, it's just, you know, it's woo. <laughs> I mean, Sever does ask if Dara wants them back. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, do you want them back? Like he clearly doesn't want to give them back. And Dara's like, no, I just forgot how crazy you were. <laughs> I love it. This was as weird as an obsession of body parts as uh, I saw since Rocket and um, wanting the leg in mm. Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> Actually, that's a good comparison. Rocket and Severo. <laughs> Think I, about I it. I thought about doing something close to that dialect. They go for their little walk. Side LOL. <laughs> At one point in their walk, you know, they're trucking along. Severo's pushing Darrow's wheelchair. I don't remember what he's talking about but he says something just kind of over the top and darrow hears like a thump and a bump and he stops rolling for a second and then he rolls again he looks back and ragnar's the one pushing them and severo is like stop throwing me and that wording makes it sound like this is something that has happened before <laughs> because in this instance he's only thrown once so when Severo says, stop throwing me, I'm like, his specific wording is more like, I'm a terrorist warlord, stop throwing me. But he's asking Ragnar to stop doing something that's happened before. Or it could be, nobody tosses a dwarf. <laughs> or he's just feeling embarrassed. Yeah, any one of those. Maybe all I three. think it's happened before. But I, I also, though, the the Lord of the Rings reference, that would be very Pierce. You know, we've already heard Osgiliath, so I'm kind of surprised that it wasn't worded closer to that, yeah. now that I think well, about it. I mean, it's possible. It It's it's a bit of a stretch, but not uh, too far, I think. So, they very first go to visit some howlers. They see Clown and Pebble, and Daryl's like, I'm sorry that I lied to you, and Clown's like, about that, and Pebble's like, stop it, stop it, you asshole. And that's not what she actually says. <laughs> She's like, nope. But I do love that Clown and Pebble apparently did not bat an eye when Severo told them Darrow was a red. And they immediately went along with him to extract Darrow's family. The thing is, like, because there are howlers like Thistle who straight up noped out on them, the fact that they didn't just kind of say, okay, fine, we're howlers, let's go. They were like, okay, let's do it. Well, Clown and, I, and Pebble I, are two of the OGs, aren't they? Yes. yes. Yeah, yes. but so is Thistle. Well, and, and yeah, but they know. always said that Thistle had a stick up her ass. Yeah. Well, Severo said that once very briefly in Golden Sun. So, like, and even when Darrow gave the razor to Ragnar after they landed in the Iron Rain, Thistle, yes, was the only one that was nasty about it, but. The others were also like, Darrow, what are you doing? They weren't against it the way Thistle was, but that doesn't mean they agreed with it. So at some point... I like to think because, you know, I like to think that even... I mean, clearly among the golds, there are people who can be taught. Um, mm -hmm. But it's it's like, if I were them, I would think back to the Institute and think about how... Darrow treated people once he really started taking charge. You know, right, but that's exactly what he lectured it to them too. Yeah, this is treating people with dignity and like, hey, maybe and and they're like, oh, oh, all right, you know, 
Also, sort of the lesson that a lot of gold is refusing and will continue to refuse to learn is that anybody, apparently, well, not anybody, because Darrow's a special friend and he's got his hands. Uh, but if given the right opportunity, it doesn't matter where you were born, he's better than most golds. And he, you know, he's only been a gold for like three years. I think it's been a little bit longer than yeah, that, know, like four or five. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Ugh, still, they didn't have to go along blindly. Yeah. But the wording, they didn't bat an eye. They're just like, whatever, sure. Now let's go rescue his family. Take a step forward in this uh, magnificent base, secret base that they have that, well, in the future, we'll probably learn a little bit more about it. But just the power something like this would get built without people noticing is a bit of a stretch to me. So I think the way they describe it away is very basic in that Fitchner hit it with things. Like, I'll be honest, I can't remember the weird Red Rising technology names that are used, but the formations already existed. Fitchner used technology to hide it. And you got to remember, the Sons of Aries have a lot of money we don't know how they have a lot of money but they have a lot of money and it's kind of like the jackal owning a whole bunch of the media right like fitchner owned a whole bunch of technology that allowed him to hide the location of this place like the stalactite already existed the underground caves already existed it's like going to like Larray caverns or mammoth cave in kentucky right but it being a billion times bigger anyway speaking of tina's I love the sort of Star Wars reference when Severo calls it a wretched hive of angst and peasantry. <laughs> well, because he couldn't call it scum and villainy because the poor people that are there yeah. are refugees and not there by choice. So Titus is stuffed full of people and things aren't going too hot. Like we said, there's not enough food or meds. The people rioted when rations were cut and Ragnar had to go down to stop the riot. And... They tell Darrow they have to keep the lights bright even at night. And Darrow notes that Severo looks tired because he knows how to fight. But this is a different, totally different type of fight. And Darrow looks down at the city and he can't really find the words that he needs to say. He is thinking about the people that are living down there and is thinking, I feel like a prisoner who spent his whole life digging through the wall only to break through and find he's dug into another cell except there will always be another cell and another and another. These people are not living. They're all just trying to postpone the end. And he knows this isn't what EO wanted, but dreaming is easy. War is not. And next up, he goes to a meeting and Dancer and Severo are kind of at each other's throats. We will learn more about why in our next episode. But for now, Ragnar notes that the Reds are not warriors. They can do all these other things. They can fly ships, shoot guns, lay bombs, fight greys. But if a gold shows up, they're just like, bye forever. It's just very clear that the sons of Ares are guerrilla fighters and saboteurs and spies. Darrow thinks about Lorne's words, how do sheep kill a lion by drowning him in blood? Anyway. Darrow's confused as to how they ended up in this open war because the Jekyll did not publicize killing Fitchner and would have wanted it quiet as he purged the sons. They had this whole like, did you tell him? Why didn't you tell him? He went on a night with his family. First of all, why is it Dancer's job to tell Darrow what Severo did? Because somebody already talked about the eyes and is feeling self-conscious. I mean, I think Severo just knows what he did was wrong and he doesn't want to admit it. 
Yeah, I mean... I don't think so. And maybe he doesn't know it's wrong, but... Okay, here's the thing. He doesn't think it's wrong. He does know it's going to upset Darrow. Yeah, I mean, he yeah, does but, know it's going to okay, upset Darrow. But, but I hate to keep, hit, keep hitting this button so hard, but since Pierce served it up to me... By the way, folks, if you don't know... I don't know whether I mentioned this. I have a master's in Irish studies and have, in fact, read a ton of Irish history. And he's not my favorite person but uh old patrick pierce had a quote the fools the fools the fools they have left us our fenian dead right there's nothing they like more than a martyr that was actually one of the smarter things that severo did well i, I was gonna say i think it was absolutely the way to go you know darrow was probably dead yes severo was a believer that he wasn't but statistically you know that was a fool's errand to yeah. just assume that. And that was a card he had to play to get the Reds to rebel. And I think being that they were totally SOL with very few allies and, well, a little bit more resources than... It was a card to play, and he played it. Yeah. And I think he played it at the mm -hmm. right time, considering. I mean, I don't completely disagree, but I do think he didn't want to be the one to have to tell Darrow about it. He oh, no, I definitely agree upset. about that. I mean, even in that quote that you have there where he's like, I made you a myth. How hard is it to go up to your best friend and, and be like, um, so I did something while we all thought you might have been dead. Well, I mean, Seth, you've already read several ones. You want to read that quote? I will read that quote. The Golds thought they could kill you off, that they could beat you and make your death mean nothing. I'll be damned if I'd let that happen. Damned if I'd let you disappear facelessly into the machine like my mother. There's not a red on Mars doesn't know your name, Reed. Not a single person in the digital world who doesn't know that a red rose to become Prince of the Golds to conquer Mars. I made you a myth. Yeah. And, and now that you're back from the dead, you're not just a martyr. You're the bloody damn messiah the reds have been waiting for their entire lives. Jesus allegory here? Yeah, I mean, he, uh, he is. Oh, yeah. Well, they rolled yeah. the table away. And yeah, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of like a stone table, I'm pretty sure. Oh, gosh. The deeper <sighs> magic from before the dawn of time. Oh, I'm off to go write a Darrow Christ superstar parody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that's... oh, my God. <laughs> okay, there, there, there is your show when you start Red Rising Con. <laughs> I've been wanting to do that for a billion freaking years, and I've just been waiting for the money to do it. Like, I need a backer <laughs> and more free time. When I win the lottery. Yeah. So, Ragnar and Darrow, after this nonsense, Darrow's like, I gotta get out of here, man. I gotta get out of here. Ragnar and Darrow have a moment about Ragnar missing home and his sister and Ragnar tells him that he sent friends to the spires and the ice to spread Darrow's word that their gods are false they're in bondage but soon they will be freed and that they will know Eo's song and Darrow he kind of doesn't believe any Eo's song anymore and he tells Ragnar he doesn't feel her anymore he knows that Everybody, like these low colors, think that Darrow is their link to their Persephone, to Eo. But he lost her in the darkness. And while he used to think that she was watching me and used to talk to her, now she's a stranger. And he believes that if he hadn't been so proud, he would have seen the signs and Fitchner and Lorne would still be alive. But like we said in the summary, this is a lot of could and should and would-haves and what-haves. And this is 
when Ragnar accuses, like straight up accuses Darrow of being afraid of the people he's trying to help. And so he takes Darrow to the hospital to visit some of the patients. This is like the depth of Ragnar's character and knowledge is so there. I mean, obviously, I think we all loved him, like from book two, right? Did we all love him? It, does it, can anybody say I didn't like Ragnar? No, I mean, I, I mean, again, he's he's a darker character. And I jokingly referred to him as this, but he is kind of two packs who furious. Yeah, he's there for us to latch on to that, that well, type of character again. Right. But unlike Pax, who was a gold, yeah, he is also a low color. And uh, I don't know, he just he takes Dara to this hospital and Dara like he, he's visiting with some of the patients and Dara starts a conversation with one of them. I think his name is Vano. And it kind of is awkward at first. And then they start joking. The red that he's talking to says he, where he worked in the mines was basically the person who was like, I think Darrow says your chaff was like, it was either dropping down on me or flying up at me. And the red, I'm again, I'm pretty sure his name is Vano is like, yeah, well you hell divers all the same. Y'all think you're the shit basically. And the fact that this red is okay with joking with him makes Darrow feel so much at ease. And then they just, I mean, they start really joking. Like, I think one of them asks, like, so do you got a red dick or a gold dick? <laughs> it's not in those words, but <laughs> it's basically like, so did they change everything? And Darrow's like, your mom knows. It's like he kind of immediately knows what they need to hear, even if it's not necessarily what he would say well no that's not even true how he responds to them it's very automatic right he responds as a red not yeah. as the gold he has become and so he is able to personify himself for them and also realize that this is exactly what he needs he needs to be a man of the people again because he's he's been that and he's not been that, right? He's or he's maybe it's more that he's tried to be that, but at every turn, him being a gold has taken that ability away from him. And at least in Golden Sun, like when he gives the ships to the low colors, says like take over, right? Yeah. Well, then he has to take it back and be their leader again. And be someone they're probably afraid of, whether he wants to be that person or not. And at this point, he doesn't have to be the person anyone is afraid of. There's a really, really, really good quote here. I've never been a man of joy or a man of war or an island in a storm. Never an absolute like Lorne. That was what I pretended to be. But I am and always have been a man who is made complete by those around him. I feel strength growing in myself, a strength I haven't felt in so long. It's not only that I'm loved, it's that they believe in me. Not the mask, like my soldiers at the Institute. Not the false idol I built in the service of Augustus, but the man beneath. Lycos may be gone, Eo may be silent, Mustang a world away, and the sun's on the brink of extinction. But I feel my soul trickling back into me as I realize I am finally home. He sees his people again. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's something he hasn't really had a chance to do 
since the very beginning of book one. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So at this point, he knows he needs Victra in several ways. Needs her as Not a that friend. way. Yeah, not, not that way. There, not that way. Not that way. I feel like Victra wouldn't want him in that way right now anyway. PTSD girl does not want a relationship, okay? So he goes to yeah. her as a friend. And as we mentioned, he wants to offer her an explanation. But, well, she does not want to be bothered. She's like, skip your explanation. It's like trifling shit. <laughs> Don't be a trifling bitch, Darrow. Like, this is just trifling shit people muddle through because they're insecure. And he doesn't owe her an explanation. Because... We all enter a certain social contract by living in this society of ours. My people oppress your kind. We live off the spoils of your labor, pretending you don't exist. And you fight back, usually very poorly. Personally, I think that's your right. It's not good or evil, but it's fair. I'd applaud a mouse that managed to kill an eagle, wouldn't you? Good for it. It's absurd and hypocritical for Golds to complain now simply because the Reds finally started fighting well. And Darrow's like, whoa, what? And Victor's like, dude, it's not my problem. You're more emotional than me. <laughs> and she insists, don't ask me to be different because you need validation, please. It's beneath both of us. And I think that Darrow's realization that there's no artifice to Victra, no coy manipulation, that she is a wrecking ball. Coming like a wrecking ball. <laughs> Somebody write that Victra Miley Cyrus parody, please. <laughs> <laughs> I've got so much on my plate already. I know. My God, you yeah. just have 10 more parodies to write. Listen. So she did let her guard down. Especially with him, but kind of generally overall before their captivity. Now it is back up bigger and stronger than ever. I mean, for obvious freaking reasons, for fuck's sake. Like, first things first. Supposedly, and, and Victor tells Darrow this. Supposedly, Antonia thought Victor and Darrow were lovers and taunted Victor with the video of Darrow's carving, assuming it would disgust her to see what he was and where he came from and that she'd been lied to. But, again... Victor's fucking awesome and she didn't care like of course she didn't care she specifically says she cares about what people do about truth and she says that if Darrow had told her she wouldn't have done a single thing different she would have protected him I could just see Victor's response to that after the video just looking up at Antonia and being something like this is my voice for Victor now so he's still more of a man than most girls I know she absolutely had to have given Antonia some snarky ass response. And Antonia was like, let me torture you more. Yeah. Which is like, ugh, but also like, mm. not the torture, the Victor just being so staunch and her just not giving a shit about yeah. where you came from. <clears throat> you know, it, it, if a mouse killed an eagle, I would applaud. And that kind of, it reminds me of that cartoon with the two eagles sitting with each other. And they were like, oh, like Mr. Mouse says Mr. Owl is an asshole. And the other eagles like, well, he's never done anything wrong to me. The unfortunate thing about this whole exchange is that Victra actually does believe she knows he told Mustang 
And she believes that he didn't tell her because deep down he thinks she's wicked and never trusted her. And I know, obviously we all know, because we talked about this quite a bit throughout our Golden Sun episodes, particularly the latter ones, um, where Darrow holds her family or most, most specifically Antonia against her. So I think Darrow isn't being entirely truthful with her. I don't necessarily think it's that he didn't trust her specifically. It was that his mind was so wrapped up in how awful her sister was that he couldn't bring himself to open up to Victra. Well, I mean, but also he didn't tell, uh, uh, he didn't tell the butt sucker, right? He didn't tell Severo. Fitchner told Severo. So he's not telling everybody because he's not it's not that he doesn't trust you because that he thinks that you're evil necessarily he's not sure how you're gonna react because you're a gold yeah exactly which, which is fair yeah yeah why did he tell mustang well he he's because he's in love with her stupid in love with mustang rightfully so but also who I mean, isn't yeah, stupid yeah. in love with victra because i am <laughs> I, I, again victor Victor and I disagree on some fairly fundamental fundamental things. <laughs> In this instance, he disagrees with her. Or at least with the fact that he didn't tell her because he thinks she's wicked. And I, I do believe he absolutely doesn't think she's wicked at all. He wants to make amends with her. He believes he owes her a life and owes her justice. Because she taught him loyalty more than anyone else ever could. And because of that, he believes in her as much as he's ever believed in anyone. And I love this quote, be my family and I will never forsake you. I will never lie to you. I will be your brother as long as you live. Because again, oh yeah, he wants her to join the Sons of Aries. And he does give her the option, right? He's like, you can leave. I will let you, go. I will make sure they let you go. This is the request he made of or demand he made of dancer at all like he didn't just say i'm gonna go visit victra he was like i'm gonna go visit victra and i'm gonna just give her whatever she wants basically but really what i want her to do is join us and whatever he says orcs it's magic because she's like yeah partner let's go kill some assholes i think maybe that was it <laughs> it's a version of well if i fight with you do i get to kill the english you know it's oh absolutely absolutely it is victor doesn't believe necessarily in the sons of aries in the rising ideals whatever but she also doesn't care right yeah. like she doesn't give a shit about her family she doesn't give a shit about her wealth she kind of never has like it's been there but it's never been something that she has touted she's always followed yeah darrow so yes but it's easier to not care about something when it's always there and you can oh for sure go back to it yeah you're right it's easier to care about things when you know that you can go back or not care pretend or play at the fact that you don't care about things when you know you can go back to them but for now victra shakes darrow's hand and agrees to be part of the rising of the sons of Aries specifically she could have just left that's the other thing she could have just left granted 
would she go <laughs> is also a question. But she is a Julii, and despite the fact that Antonia is still alive, being the bitch that she is, I do think that Victor probably could have found her way to the right people at the right time and figured her shit out without Darrow's help. Yes and no. I think she'd always be a person on the run. She'd always have to be under in the shadows. I don't think always, but what I do think is that that doesn't matter because what she really truly wants, and she says it's revenge, but honestly, that's not, I don't think that's what she wants in its entirety. She wants to feel like she's a part of something. And I think she's always kind of wanted that, which is why she followed Darrow, even though like her family way fucking higher than his, her family is richer than Cassius's family. Richer, I think, even then, it doesn't have the political power necessarily that the Augustuses have, but they run like most of the trade in the galaxy that that golds can run. So I think that what she wants is just to be a real person, which sounds like a really weak explanation, but I think that's really what it is. She wants to be her own real person and... Yes, right now, her own real person is bent on revenge, but as cold as Victra is, there's more to it at this point than that because she really did get shot in the fucking back at the Triumph, and she didn't just die. She didn't try to escape, right? She didn't crawl toward the exit. She crawled toward Darrow to tell him, I didn't know. Trust me, I didn't know. I think that is an important thing to know. Any last thoughts about part one of Morningstar? Well, we're certainly in a better place than at the end of book two. Thank God, right? <laughs> I mean, look, I just, and maybe it's unfair to do this. There's only so many red weddings I can take. There's only so many of them. And then I just have to have a nice lie down and go read some Terry Pratchett. This was actually, I think, my fa- one of my favorite parts of the series to date was these scenes well as we close out the episode we just want to give a shout out to our heroes tier patron tommy of the tkok podcast network thank you so much for supporting us seriously once again i'm tara along with fellow host jonathan and practically permanent guest host seth at some point maybe you'll be like not that but (laughs) For now, <laughs> for now I, I, I like saying it. So. Maybe maybe at some point I could be temporary regular host. Don't forget that you can always hit us up at Sagas and Sass on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube. Or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com with any comments or thoughts you might have. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We will be back on Wednesday, January 18th to cover part two of Morningstar. Thank you for listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Sagas and Sass.